1977, Mary and I got married. And two weeks before our wedding, I was at a training time. I was working with uh, an organization that worked with delinquent kids. And we went to this training in Chicago. We lived in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, it was a week-long training. And I sound like I'm in a, in a bowl here. Or is it just me? And we were in this week-long training, but there was two weekends. And so they told us that they had arranged for this whole group to go to this church on the second weekend that the organizers of this training said was they considered probably the best church in Chicago. So I was pretty excited, but the, the weekend before, I went with one of the guys on our team to the church he went to, and it was just on fire. And there was worship, and people were friendly, and someone actually invited our whole team to their house for lunch, and it was an actually wonderful church, but I kept thinking in my mind, but next week is the best church. And uh, so I had this high expectation, went to this church and uh, I was quite shocked in that when we got there, they had these wooden pews with really high sides and backs that isolated everybody. And the guy who spoke was up on a circular thing up high, did one song, and he just talked about some sort of being nice to people, nothing about Jesus. And I walked out at the end of this because my expectation was so high, and I was just angry. Ah, oh, the church is terrible! And... Thinking, you know, I had such high expectations, so I'm, I'm actually out in the parking lot, and I'm just livid about what I just experienced, and felt like I'd been set up. The church was terrible, and as we often do, I expanded my criticism from that church to the church. The church just has no understanding of Jesus, and 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 for the first time in my life, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And Jesus said, you're right, but she's my bride, and I love her. And I was broken. And God began to do something in me. I literally cried the whole day. Uh, couldn't eat. Realized two things. One, that I was criticizing his bride, but two, of his love. But something happened in me that day that I determined that I wanted to be a part of the church that Jesus was building. See, many people can see the problem, but, the pro but what happens for many people is we see the problem, then we withdraw. And we say the church is hierarchical, the church is unloving, the church is business-oriented, the church is after money. And we make these broad statements about the church as a whole, and rather than being part of the solution, we'd actually just become part of the problem. Something happened in my heart that day. And the word that Mary shared this morning, that this is a season for singing. See, in my heart was a picture of the church that Jesus is building. And I just had a sense this morning that we're entering into that season. I've been looking for this for 40 years been doing everything I can to prepare for it and to build it in the churches I've been part of, but there's something of the Spirit today that just, I've got an excitement I haven't had, and I'm normally excitable. 
The church that Jesus is building. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Not the church that people are building, but the church that Jesus is building. So I want to get into something. Part of that church that Jesus is building, there's many facets. Part of it is that everyone is a minister. That we're a kingdom of priests. Everyone does the ministry, not just the leaders. Ephesians 4.12 says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and Jesus for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Saints are anyone who believes in Jesus. Saints are not special people who've done something super. Saint, biblically, is everyone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ and are walking in relationship with him. 1 Peter 2.5 says that we're living stones built together, a holy priesthood. So there's something of God's purpose for a church that is equipped. Now, there is a tension in me as I share this week and the next few weeks. There's a tension between ministry and equipping. Ministry is getting to the conclusion so the Holy Spirit can do something. But equipping is making people aware of how you get there so that they can do it themselves. Ministry is the prophet who comes and prophesies over people. Equipping is teaching people how to hear God's voice so that God can speak through them. Do you understand the difference? Too often ministry becomes our goal. We have some sort of revelation, and then we, we want to hold on to it. We copyright it, and nobody can use it. But the reality is that Jesus wants an equipped church who's actually doing the work of the ministry. As I've said before, what's the ministry of all the saints? There's a whole lot of things that the Bible talks about, our service to God, our priesthood. But I've boiled it down to four major things. Worship, warfare, work, and witness. I put those all in W's just so that it'd be easy for you to remember, easy for me to remember. We've talked about worship. I want to actually get into the arena of warfare over the next few weeks. But before I do, I want to kind of set the stage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. See, all the ministry that we do should be in partnership with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel's writing and there says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces east, and there was water running out. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the water, and the water came up to my ankles. And he measured a thousand and brought me through the water, and water came up to my knees. He measured a thousand and brought me through, and the water came up to my waist. They measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim 
a river that could not be crossed. This is a picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the life of God that flows from the presence of God that we get to be part of. Now, if you see the picture, he's actually walking down the river. He's going east. The water's flowing east, and he goes east a 1,000 cubits, and it's up to his ankles. And he goes farther down, and it's up to his knees. I think this is a picture of us moving in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it gets deeper and deeper. We learn. We can see. Kate shared a scripture, Jesus saying the very words, the very works that he's done will do an even greater. I believe this is the time for the church to do that. And that's really what we're aiming at in this whole thing. Said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there along the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and the other said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, the waters are healed. The word the sea is a picture of the nations, of people. So it's talking about the presence of God that's flowing to impact the world. And when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. That's a wonderful picture of the presence of God through the church bringing healing to the nations. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, the rivers go will live. Isn't that a wonderful picture? A church filled with the Holy Spirit bringing life. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. I love it. Everything will live. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of ingathering. On the last day, the great day of the feast, it lasted all week. On the last day, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Understand the picture. All week, they've been celebrating this feast. And on the last day, the priest would take water from the temple and he would come to the place where he would pour it out as a prophetic sign that there was more to come. And in this place, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. How do I know that that river in Ezekiel is the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus says right here. Joel picks up the same concept and talks about fountains. But there's something of the flowing of God. Now, turn with me to John 4. 
because I want to read this story from that perspective so you can see how Jesus ministered. Verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, that's not a geographical need. The road didn't go that way. In fact, most of the Jews avoided Samaria because they had this problem with Samaritans. And they would go down to the, the river, the, the Jordan, and they would walk along because it was easier to travel because Samaria was hilly. But also they, they would uh, bypass Samaria. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Something of the Spirit, I think. He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's about noon. Jesus has been traveling. He's tired. He sits down by the well. Problem is that it's hard to, to get water out of a well unless you have something to draw with. That's how they protected their water source. They didn't, it didn't have a, our pictures that we have a bucket tied to a rope and you just wind it up. No, they actually had to, didn't have a, a bucket tied to a rope. They had to bring their own bucket and lower it down and draw something. So Jesus is by this well. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy bread. So Jesus is there by himself. This lady comes to get water. Middle of the day. Don't know why she's there in the middle of the day. Normally they would draw in the morning or evening. Some say, ah, because she was a social outcast. I don't think that's the case. Because later on, the whole city responds to what she says. Maybe she was busy in the morning. I don't know what it was. But she happened to come at the time when Jesus was there. I'm sure it was just a coincidence. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. She's basically saying, We're of a different social caste. She's, share, she's showing her insecurity. How did she know he was a Jew? I don't know. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and the livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whatever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. For the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is talking about something. I think he recognized a thirst in this woman. Woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's still seeing everything in the natural. I don't want to have to come here and get water. This is a pain. Give me this living water that I don't have to do this. And Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, said well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now have is not your husband, and, and in that you spoke truly. Now, Jesus didn't actually criticize her. He didn't condemn her. He actually affirmed her honesty. We think Jesus should have jumped all over. You're not married. The guy you're living with, you're not married to. Jesus looked beyond that. I think he realized there's a thirst within you, and you're drinking at the wrong place. And it's not fulfilling. It's not satisfying. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. See, what Jesus did was something of that ministry of the Holy Spirit, a word of knowledge. See, we think Jesus functioned the way he did because he was God, but he had left being God when he became a man, and he worked in the Holy Spirit the same way we work in the Holy Spirit. If we're going to do the same works that Jesus did, we have to have the same sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that he had. We don't have to become God to do the works he did. He didn't do the works he did as God. He did them as a man, led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what he did was simply a word of knowledge. Yes, you've had five husbands, and the man you're married to isn't your husband. And she goes, ha, I perceive something supernatural here. I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you just say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. She kind of changes the whole focus. Something supernatural happens, and as what happens with most of us, we get into these theological arguments. But what about this? The Holy Spirit's breaking in, wanting to do something, and she turns to this argument. You say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. He simply says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What he was saying was true. But he said, the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. All of a sudden, see, he didn't take the bait for this theological argument. He says something different, and all of a sudden, she has an understanding of revelation. I know Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Messiah has come. How many people miss the answer to all their circumstances and problems because they're looking for something sometime, somewhere. And Jesus comes today and says, I'm here. And at the point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked to a woman, yet no one said, why do you, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went away into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I've ever did. Could this be the Christ? Wonderful picture. All she simply said was, come and look. 
And it goes on, and Jesus talks about different things, but in verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed with them two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you have said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Ministry of the Holy Spirit is flowing in that river. Everything we do as believers, as saints, should be in partnership with the Holy Spirit. I want to make a couple of statements before I get into to warfare because I want you to understand this. Character is a requirement of leadership, but not for ministry. Right doctrine, the ability to teach, is a requirement for leadership, but not for ministry. See, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not an endorsement of us. It's the grace of God flowing to hurting people. Too often we think it's an endorsement. It's an endorsement of my faith. God was able to use me because I have great faith. Baloney. God's able to use you because he's a great God. See, the problem is we have all these little things that take a little bit of the focus off of him and put it on us. It was my faith. Our God was able to use me because I've got good doctrine. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not an endorsement of doctrine. A lot of prophets have gone off base in the past because they were used by God and they felt that that was an endorsement of their doctrine and they got weird stuff. Ministry of the Holy Spirit is not an endorsement of our lifestyle. If I live holy, God can use me. See, there's a pressure that we take the focus off of who's actually doing it, and it becomes something about us. If I'm holy enough, if I have enough faith, if I have right doctrine, if I have enough understanding and education, then God can use me. And in many churches, unfortunately, the only people who can minister are leaders who are equipped because of their education. Two things. The Holy Spirit can use you. But because he uses you, is not an endorsement that you're something great. See, we live in a celebrity-driven culture. And we want celebrities. And there's something in most of us that wants to be a celebrity. Oh, God, use me. So that everyone says, oh, look at his great faith. Oh, God, use me. Bring revival, but let us start here. So I get a little bit of the credit. I was part of a church many years ago. I was young. I was walking into the church, and a woman came and said, I want to tell you, you're a mighty man of faith. 
I said, you know, we have a great God. She said, no, but you're a great man of faith. I said, no, we have a great God. See, if we're going to move in the Holy Spirit, if we're going to see the power of God poured out through the church, how he wants to see it poured out, we have to set our hearts that he alone gets glory. He alone. The manifestations and the moving of the Holy Spirit is not an endorsement about us at all. It's actually an expression of the grace of God. You know, he doesn't use perfect people. You know why he doesn't use perfect people? Because if he only used perfect people, he'd have nobody to work with. Except Jesus. He actually uses imperfect people. That's us. But see, too often we think we're disqualified because we're not perfect. Or we don't have enough faith. Or we're not holy enough. Or we don't understand enough. Or we don't have enough training or enough education. If, if I had better, better understanding of theology, God could use me. And all those limit the Holy Spirit from being released through his church. I have a friend who talks about that kind of preaching as preaching for job security. See, if you have to have the education I have, then probably I'm the only one who's ever going to have the job that I have. What I want to let you know this morning is as we talk about moving in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's for everyone. Every single person. But when we talk about that, there is an opposition. There is a warfare. I was raised in an uh, evangelical church, and in my late teens, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit and went to another church where I became part of the leadership team, and we had this men's retreat. And we were at this retreat, and one of the guys at the retreat asked me to pray for him. And as I was praying for him, I found myself praying that a spirit of rejection would be, he would be set free from a spirit of rejection. Now, I've got a fundamental uh, evangelical background. When I said spirit, I didn't mean like demon spirit. I meant like, you know, mentality, attitude, his way of looking at the world. His worldview was, was based on his rejection and that God wanted to set him free. And that's what I was thinking. But I actually said that he would be free from a spirit of rejection. And the guy falls on the ground and starts slithering like a snake. First, I didn't know a human body could do that. But my theology didn't have a place for Christians to, to have demons. But he obviously did. And I was shocked. I grabbed another friend and said, come here, pray with me. We took authority in the name of Jesus, and he was set free. We're going to talk about kingdom authority in the next week or two. He wasn't set free because of my faith. I had no faith. He was set free because of the authority of the name of Jesus. Okay, it wasn't me. But what that did is it prompted me to say, man, I need to take a good look at what the Bible says about people being demonized. 
See, I was raised, the, the church I was raised in used the King James Version, and the King James says that this guy was, was demon-possessed. And so the argument was that someone who is, has the Spirit of God in their spirit, is born again, can't have, be possessed by a demon. And so we had this theology that Christians couldn't have demons. The problem is that the word possessed isn't there. It doesn't say that. It was actually a mistranslation. It actually is a, a verb that literally says demonized. This person was demonized. So our whole argument was based on a misunderstanding. And I realized as I began to look at the, the word, I had a lot of misunderstandings. And I had to go back to, okay, what does the Bible actually say? And so, I want to get into this. I'm going to give you kind of a broad brush overview today, just because of the sake of time. It's already, I'm going to have to talk real fast. <laughs> and then we're going to get more into ministry and application in the next few weeks. But I want to tell you that, as I see in the Bible, there's three arenas of warfare. Bottom line is that the devil wants us to get our eyes off of God. He didn't care where we put them as long as they're not on Jesus. He wants us to get our eyes on ourselves. He wants to get us to get our eyes on him. He wants to get us to get our eyes on people. He wants to get us to get our eyes on celebrities. Anything but keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's kind of the background. So, three arenas of warfare. First one is principalities. I think in pictures, so I actually have pictures on my notes, but I can't draw my pictures. So principalities, which are uh, Ephesians 6.17, says we're not battling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and uh, rulers in heavenly places. It's here. Oh, sorry. I'm looking in Galatians. It's not there. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 6. Wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. So there is something of principalities. I don't want to get a whole lot into this. Jude 9 says that, that uh, the angel did not speak a reviling word against the devil. He actually said, the Lord rebuke you. I think there's something of understanding that principalities are not our realm of warfare. How do we deal with principalities? We worship Jesus and we pray. We don't have to get in helicopters and go up into the heavenly places and start trying to take authority over uh, principalities and powers. We simply worship Jesus. Okay? There was a uh, church I was at gal came to, to talk to me one day, and she said she was having problems. She wasn't living victorious. And, and I asked her, what did her quiet time look like? She said, well, she didn't really have a quiet time. She had heard some teaching on spiritual warfare, so she spent her morning, every morning, binding Satan from her family and from her kids and from her home and from her business. And, and I said, uh, so how long does that take you? She said, about 45 minutes. 
I said, so what you're telling me is that you spend 45 minutes every morning talking to the devil. He won. See, she had been taught that she had to take authority over these things every day. I want to tell you, if you get your eyes on Jesus, he is greater. There's principalities, and then for sake of alliteration, there's people who are demonized or oppressed. Okay? That's more where we deal with. Luke 10, from verse 17. I hope you can stay with me. I'm giving you a whole lot of a broad brush look at something that we're going to spend some more time on. For verse 17 of Luke 10, and when the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. We're going to talk about kingdom authority. There's a difference between authority and power. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That power is the ability to overcome your flesh. You don't have power to overcome the devil. You have authority. The power is always in Jesus. See, the problem is we think the power is in us. I've got it. I've got power over this. That was the sons of Sceva who, who said, in, in, you know, the Jesus that Paul serves. And, and the demon said, we know those guys, but we don't know you. See, they made the mistake that they thought they had power rather than authority. We're going to talk about kingdom authority in the weeks to come. The third, there's principalities, there's people who are demonized, and then there are, I'm going to say, philosophies, okay, which is really uh, deception or strongholds that impact people. Colossians 2 Let me find it real quick. Excuse me for speaking so fast. Colossians 2, 8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you or, or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. There is the result of principalities in our world and our culture that create beliefs or strongholds that tend to take us captive. How do we deal with those? We live in truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. Jesus said in John 18, giving you a lot of scripture this morning because we're equipping John 18, 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you, the, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. See, Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy, but he also came to bear witness to 